KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Now, there were some good people out there in the streets the last few nights. Not just hoodlums like they say in the newspapers. In a scene like this, anybody can get involved. But that's only going to make it worse. We have to maintain law and order, or we might as well be back in the jungles. <laughs> Dollars, the ghetto is a jungle, always has been. Understand? You cannot cage people like animals and not expect them to fight back someday. It has always been an army occupation here, with police badges and uniforms. Huh? You and me, a cop and a social worker, we are keepers of this goddamn zoo. The streets have to be safe. Safe for who? You're here to protect property, not lives. Well, that's what it's all about, isn't it? That line comes from the 1973 film, The Spook Who Sat by the Door. But it still resonates today, as we sometimes see more outrage over property damage than human lives during the current wave of protests. So today, I'll be talking about some black films that matter and that can provide a context for and perhaps insights into the protests we're seeing in reaction to the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. As someone who grew up in the 60s, I've seen protests before, and I'm hopeful that the current ones will produce genuine change. But I also feel like so much of the current conversation sounds painfully familiar. We're still talking about racial inequality, police brutality, and systemic racism. So I thought it might be good to frame today's protests in the context of some films that have raised these issues before in creative ways. I see film as a great educational tool. It's readily accessible, less intimidating than opening a book, and more fun than listening to a lecture. At its best, film engages you through story and character so that it appeals to you on a very emotional or visceral level. Films may not be able to change the world, but they can shine a light on problems and issues and stir discussion that can be the first steps to change. So to highlight just a few of the many black films that matter, I'm thrilled and honored to have writer, filmmaker, and publisher David F. Walker. To highlight just a few of his works, he's written for Marvel Comics' Luke Cage and for Dynamite Entertainment's Shaft. He's also written a graphic novel on Frederick Douglass and an upcoming one on the Black Panther Party. David and I share a love for black exploitation cinema, and if you want to dig back into the Cinema Junkie archives, look for episode 60 on black exploitation movies. I need to take one quick break, and then I'll be back to discuss a collection of black films that matter with David Walker. David, I always enjoy talking to you about film. We had a really fun conversation about black exploitation cinema. And I wanted to talk to you now because I feel like with the protests that have been coming up, films can give people a really good context for what's going on and a better understanding of what these protests mean in a larger picture. So I wanted to start talking to you about some films, but uh, before we start talking about films, I just wanted to ask you quickly about your current project that you're starting, which is really exciting, uh, about the Black Panthers. I've written a graphic novel about the Black Panther Party for a publisher called 10 Speed Press. Uh, I did a book for them on the life of Frederick Douglass that came out in early, 2019. So in some ways, this is the follow-up to that. And this is scheduled to come out January 2021. And um, it's being drawn by a, a guy out of upstate New York named Marcus Kwame Anderson. And it's it's very close to being done. I, I just, just this morning, in fact, I got an email from Marcus uh, asking for some reference images for, for some certain people. And this has been a huge undertaking. I finished writing the script last year and Marcus has been drawing it for a little over a year. It's gonna be 
about 180, 190 page book. And when we started it, it seemed like it would be a really nice thing to do to give some historical background on a, on a misunderstood organization. And now it's taken on a new, you know, relevancy that unfortunately that, you know, you realize that we're dealing with some of the, not some of the same issues that the, that the Panthers were dealing with when they first formed in, in 66, which is, 54 years ago or something like that. So it's a long time. It's interesting to me that there haven't been really that many films that address the Black Panthers as kind of the actual centerpiece of the film. Why do you think that is? Well, I think the reason there hasn't been that many films dealing with the Black Panthers, it's, it's pretty complex. I think part of it is that a lot of people still see them as being very controversial. And I think that, that it's more that they're misunderstood than controversial. And I think that it, it comes down to the fact that if you were to write a story, if you're writing, a, a, I guess you, for lack of a better term, a traditional narrative of the, uh, the Black Panther Party that casts them in the role of the good guys, well, then the bad guys are the United States government. You know, the bad guys are uh, definitely J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, but it's the Chicago Police Department. And, and, and so I think that when we're, and, and, it's, and we're talking about a level of corruption on, on a governmental level, both federal, state, and, and uh, municipal, that is kind of mind-boggling when you really think about it. And now it's not as mind-boggling now because we're seeing some of these things play out on the, on the news on a daily basis, the, the acts of police brutality, the cover-ups that are going on, the, the lack of transparency. All of this was going on in, you know, in the 60s and, and before that and since then. But I think that in terms of popular entertainment, it's difficult for a lot of people to get down with how do we show that? Like, you know, I don't think there's a problem with it. I would love to do it, but I, I, I honestly think that that's part of it. I think that part of the, the problem dealing with things like systemic racism is that it, it forces people to take a look at their own culpability. It's not just systemic racism, it's also uh, sexism and homophobia and all the other forms of oppression. Once you acknowledge it, you have to look at your own culpability. And, and sometimes that culpability is, is merely inaction or apathy. And, and nobody, wants to, nobody wants to face that. Well, one film that kind of addresses the idea of the Black Panthers and a film that has been just unfairly overlooked is The Spook Who Sat By The Door. Yep. Raise your right hand. The Spook Who Sat By The Door, the controversial best-selling novel, now becomes a shocking screen reality. The story of the first black agent in the CIA. Whoever they select will be the best-known spy since 007. Their first mistake was letting him in. And let me congratulate you on being the first Negro officer in the Central Intelligence Agency. Their worst mistake was letting him out. You really want to mess with Whitey? I can show you how. For five years, he was their token Negro. Freeman, you people must serve. For five years, he kept his cool. Man, you just don't belong. I think you'd be happier with a mop in your hands. Like your mama. And in return, they taught him how to spy, how to fight. How to kill. For five years, he was the spook who sat by the door. And then, he turned gangs of ghetto kids into a highly trained guerrilla army. We live off the land. We match technology with spontaneity and improvisation. Men against machines, brains against computers. Now, if you don't think it can work, you check out Algeria, Kenya, Korea, and Iran. Can you dig it? He turned a summer riot into a revolution. This is a film, most people may know the director, but not as a director. Ivan Dixon was very well known for being on Hogan's Heroes. And he directed this movie based on the Sam Greenlee book. 
And this is an absolutely fascinating film, and I wish that it could get more exposure right now because it does seem to address a lot of the stuff that's currently going on. Tell me a little bit about the film in terms of what you think makes it important. It's a film based on, like you said, Sam Greenlee's book, and it deals with, you know, the plot in a nutshell is about the first Black agent in the CIA. He's hired as a sort of token um, gesture and after several years working for the CIA, he leaves to take a job as a social worker in Chicago. But what he's really doing is he's forming his own like black militant army with the goal of overthrowing the US government and um, starting a sort of rebel army. And it's, you know, it's one of my favorite books of all time. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And, you know, some people are terrified by it. Some people are offended by this this notion of this need to overthrow the government. And I think that part of what's so fascinating to me about this, the movie, the story in general, is that it addresses the level of frustration and and anger and um, and all these pent up feelings that that a lot of Black folks have in that no matter how hard you try, nothing really gets done. You know, it's, it's, you see a lot of people posting stuff online now. It's like, okay, well, you know, Martin Luther King preached nonviolence and, and he got killed for it. And Malcolm X preached, preached self-defense, even if it meant violence and he got killed for it. And what do you want from us as black folks that we have to do in order for you to realize that we want freedom, you know, we want equality. And and this movie is all about that. And and it's there's a quote which which I will mangle, of course. It's uh Martin Luther King has a quote that says something to the effect of you know, a riot is is um the cry of the unheard or something like that. And that's a lot of what that at, at its core, that's what the movie's about. The movie is about that, okay, well you haven't given us what we've politely asked for what's guaranteed to us supposedly in the constitution and and now we're going to make you give it to us one way or the other you're either going to have to kill us or you're going to have to give it to us hey hey old bean and you too baby this is uncle tom commanding chief of your black freedom fighters in north america bringing you the latest news from your fighting black underground hang on brothers and sisters liberation is near in just a few minutes at precisely three o'clock, we will demolish the lavish offices of the mayor of white Chicago. Cause we don't have a mayor, even if they do count our vote several times to elect him every four years. Remember brothers, in spite of the lies about an assassination attempt on a mayor, which will appear in the white press, that this time we blew the mayor's office at night when he was at home to announce the beginning of our war of liberation. I dedicate this program to the National Guard, but we're fresh out of hillbilly music. And according to the press and television, the Guard spends all his time playing basketball with the kids and helping old ladies cross the street. But we know better, don't we? We know about that 14-year-old girl, the trigger-happy guardsman, shot last night, and the people they beat up, and the black businesses they destroyed, don't we? It's almost time. Ten seconds. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, blast off. And the mayor's office is now air conditioned, courtesy of the Black Freedom Fighters of Chicago. And this film had some problems getting made because they weren't allowed to shoot in the actual locations that they wanted and had mm -hmm. to find a, uh, I believe the location they went to was where there was a first black mayor or governor who let I them. Believe it was, they, they shot it in Gary, Indiana. Yeah. It takes place primarily in Chicago. The movie was riddled with uh, all sorts of problems and complications both during the production and after the production and they're, they're the sort of things that when you hear about them they sound almost paranoid and delusional like it's like no, there's no way this can be true there's no way that the fbi targeted this film and there's no way that it was suppressed and kept from the public and it's like well yeah because that's what you know that's what we want 
to believe. It comes back down to why it's so difficult for some people to to really engage with the the history of the Black Panthers. But yeah, there's the 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 film was targeted on a whole lot of levels, and and that's part of the reason it's it's never it hasn't been seen that much. It it was released theatrically in 1973, and it only stayed in theaters for about two weeks before the distributor pulled it. The distributor at the time was United Artists. And and to give an idea of of how completely it was sort of buried was 100% of the rights were given back to the the filmmakers, which is almost unheard of. United Artists gave the film and all of its rights back to the filmmakers, but nobody else would would touch the film. Nobody else would, would put it out. And so it really languished in the 70s and into the 80s, and it, it never got a proper release on on VHS. It was it was bootlegged for years. You could you could see really bad picture quality versions of it. And then there was an official DVD release, probably around 2000 or something like that. But I, I believe that that's out of print. And so it's sort of become this elusive film that it, it's it's not as hard to find as most people think. But it's not, you know, it's not like it's on Netflix right now. It's not like it's on Amazon streaming or anything like that. So it's it's um. But it's a great movie. I, I mean, I I watch it like other other people will watch, uh, you know, The Wizard of Oz every holiday season. I watch The Spooky Sat by the Door. Put the film in a context in terms of when it was coming out and how audiences would react to it, because it seems like a film that a black audience would embrace to say, like, yeah, you know, it's about time someone said something like this, whereas a white audience might be it might create fear in them because you're seeing these black militants arm themselves and basically say, we've waited long enough and now we're going to actually take action. You have just played out the American dream. Yeah. And now we're going to turn it into a nightmare. It's interesting because, so like I said, the movie came out in 73. I believe the book was written in 70, written and published. It came out in 1970. And, you know, this is 73 is, is sort of the, the, the peak year of the, the black exploitation movement. There was a lot of films coming out that were being marketed directly to a black audience, and 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 a lot of them had something political to say in one capacity or another. But they were they were also tied in. There was a lot of sex and violence and and things like that. And a lot of these were films that, in a lot of ways, almost pacified the audience. They were they were sort of these revenge fantasies more than they were a call to action. And and especially by 73 had it it had become that way. And the spook who sat by the door isn't really like those other movies. It's it's not it 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 does feel more like a call to arms than anything else. You really wanna mess with Whitey? But I can show you how. I can show you how. You know, at the time there's reviews of it and 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 part of the reason the FBI worked to suppress it was you know there was always this fear of the quote unquote race war and it was always this fear that that something would instigate black people to finally rise up and take arms and and declare war against the white man and that's been this fear this this white fear in America since before America was America when it was still you know part of the British colonies and and I think that, that that terrifies people so much, and especially when it's placed in a context of, oh yeah, they're justified. If people, it's interesting because people forget that if you look at say Star Wars, Star Wars is a movie about rebellion. You know, it's a it's a movie about a group of rebels rising up against an oppressive state and a, an oppressive system, and we. In, in some regards, we glorify the rebels, but then in other times, we, we vilify them. It all depends on, on how the narrative serves our ideological needs. And, and I think that the fear of, of a movie like Spooky Sat by the Doors, it doesn't feed the needs of the power structure. It, it calls the power structure to task and says, uh, yeah, we need to burn it down. Well, it's interesting, too, because a lot of the early scenes in the CIA it, it really attacks the CIA for this tokenism. Yeah. That concludes our oral examination. And let me congratulate you on being the first Negro officer in the Central Intelligence Agency. 
We've programmed your uh, aptitudes into our computer personnel system. You're to be our new top secret reproduction center section chief. He's in the third sub-basement running the Xerox machine. And, and, and Dan Freeman, that's the character's name, is he, he plays that part so well. He plays that docile. Um, and, and, you know, spook is a term for CIA agents. It's, it's an old slang term. And so the title, you know, basically is he, at, at some point, Dan was moved from the, the copy room up to the front room of the CIA so that when people would come in, senators and, and Congress people would come in, the first thing they would see is a black person, right? And so he became the spook who sat by the door. And it's, and it's just fascinating because there's things that, you know, are, as, as he's building the army and as he's, they're planning their attacks, there's things that he, he says. Remember, a black man with a mop tray or broom in his hand can go damn near anywhere in this country. And a smiling black man is invisible. Because nobody questions you if you, you know, if you're a janitor. And it's just fascinating because there's so many things that are said that are kind of these sort of painful truths. And and one of the things that happens in the movie, and I think this is really interesting, is as there as the government is trying to figure out who's behind these these acts of terrorism, they assume that it's, it must be communist infiltrators, right? That, that it has to be the commies doing it because there's because black people aren't organized enough, they're not smart enough to do this. Are you working with the commies like they say? Who's behind you? How come there gotta be somebody behind me? Oh, come on, man, don't put me on. No, no. The FBI says it's the most sophisticated underground movement in the Western Hemisphere. The work of an expert. Uh-huh, an expertise is white man's monopoly, right, Dawes? Well, I am an expert. I spent five years flunking to become an expert. This gun makes me an expert. You big man with that gun and that badge. You know, Dawes, you want to have it both ways. You want to pat on your head from Whitey, and you want to love and respect your people. But you can't be with your people without betraying that badge. And you can't be a cop without betraying your people, you hypocrite. You think nobody else feels the way you do? You think you're the only nigga with the sense of an outrage? Well, then hit back, join us! We can use you. We got undercover people on the force. On the force? That's right. But Who? Nobody with your rank. Come on, join us, Tom. And you're using kids! Who else am I going to involve? People like you and me? Uh-uh. The kids are our only hope. And I got to them before they got jailed or killed or turned into Dawson's. And now they'll do anything to be free. Who said you were free, man? Well, Dawson, even on the wrong end of your gun, I'm a lot freer than you are. And it recalls in 68 the, the Kerner Commission, which was put together by President Johnson, issued the Kerner Commission report on, on racial unrest in the U.S. And it, it essentially spelled out everything that we see happening right now today in contemporary 2020 America, the, the, the Kerner Commission's report said was going to happen. They said this in 68. And initially, Johnson, President Johnson, discounted all of it. And he, and he thought that it was some sort of communist ploy to, you know, that, that somehow the communists were involved in this, this realization that America was a racially unjust nation. And, and so it's always, you know, part of this, this uh, what the spooky sat by the door gets at is that America will look for any sort of excuse to not have to look directly at racism, racial oppression, down to um, the cause of it, and down to the reaction of it. You know, it's like, we, we really couldn't have done this, so someone else must have done this, and your response is, is unwarranted, because, so therefore you must be being agitated by, by whether it's communists or, or someone else. And if the, if that film really touches upon things that are being said now. You know, the movie came out in 73, so it's, it's you know, over 40 years old, and it's still relevant it's you know there's there's nothing in that movie that you can't look on the news and see happening right now well i was born in 1960 so i grew up seeing a lot of the civil rights 
movement on the new on the evening news mm-hmm. every night and it's really frustrating to see all these things that people like James Baldwin, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Angela Davis said and that you could take it right now and it perfectly describes what's going on now and you know I I grew up being kind of idealistic and thinking like yeah the 60s is gonna create some sort of change and it's like this betrayal that no the change you know superficial change happened yeah but the root of the problems didn't seem to and films really remind us of this too they they can most definitely and it's interesting because you're talking about you know, Malcolm X and Angela Davis and, and people in the 60s. Well, you know, Frederick Douglass was saying stuff in the 1860s, 100 years before, that are still relevant today. It's like, oh, my God. You know, Ida B. Wells, who, who was one of the leading advocates uh, for anti-lynching legislation, there's stuff that she was talking about, you know, in the, the 1800s, still relevant today. I mean, lynching is still happening today. I don't care what some people will argue the semantics that, oh, no, it's it's not a lynching because, you know, they didn't use a rope or whatever. And it's like, no, stop it, you know. Um, anyway, so that's that. No, it's true. <laughs> I can only speak from my lifetime. So Yeah, yeah, yeah no, <laughs> but, but I, I get it. But no, I, I, it's, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's you know, it's interesting because it, it's, I think that most people, and, and you just said you're just speaking from your lifetime, most people can't even do that. You know, most people don't know the the history of, you know, from the year they were born forward. Like I I have this theory, which is like, you should at least know the history of of your country from <laughs> the year you were born forward. Like that you have to know that much. And and if and and if if, if possible, go back a hundred years before you were born you know, so much stuff is interconnected, but we don't like to think about it that way. And, and I also think that people, I think there's this notion that some people think history is boring, or it's like, no, it's only boring if you're not being taught properly, or you're not, you know, you haven't found the subject matter that that sort of ignites that interest, but it's there. It's so fascinating to me. And it's, you know, as I was watching the first night of the protests in Minneapolis, back in the end of May, when the, the, city part of the city started burning and and as as i was watching that i the first thing that went through my head was oh yeah well this this has happened before you know and and it, it's not surprising to me if you if you study just the history of america between 19 say we'll say 62 and 68 none of it nothing that's going on right now is a big surprise the long hot summer of 67 which when you when you say that phrase most people are like well what is that and it's like well the the long hot summer of 67 is is was some of the most violent and and significant racial unrest in this country of the 20th century you know 1919 was was the only summer that was worse and 1967 wasn't that long ago it's you know it's it's, i mean (laughs) you and i both know this we both know people who were alive in 1967. It's you know, it, it's it's not like when you see something on the news about the last surviving Civil War veteran who's 100 and you know, 38 years old. It's like now, now there's uh, you know, my best friend was, was he was alive back then. My you know, my parents were in college. All that sort of stuff. It's it's it is just not that long ago. Well, and I was I recently saw. The Killing Floor, which I had not seen, uh, and because it was getting a, a new 4K restoration, and that was about the riots in 1919 at the mm-hmm. Chicago Stockyards, and there were moments in that film too where what they're talking about feels like it could be lifted to describe exactly what's going on today. Some blocks near the stockyards had been burned down. A lot of folks was homeless. Somebody said colored folks done it, but that didn't make no sense. No colored man could have got close enough to set that fire. Even the police said it was white men in black face. I guess it didn't matter because folks was going to think what they wanted. There's this part of me when I see something like that, 
whether it's in a movie or a documentary or I read about it, there's part of me that's like, wow, this is so amazing. And then immediately it's like, oh my God, this is so pathetic. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 yeah. um, it's, it's just, it's, it's endlessly fascinating to me. It's, it's the, the boxer, Jack Johnson, when he won the, the heavyweight title back before there was uh, television, they would film big, they'd film big boxing matches. And then those, they would take the films across the country and they'd play them for audiences. And when Jack Johnson won um, the, the heavyweight title and beat, and I can't even remember the guy's name. He was the great white hope. He was the, the, the white contender. Um, it was deemed so demoralizing that Congress banned fight films for years. That 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 was thought that uh, uh, seeing a, a black man defeat uh, a, a white man was so morally offensive that they banned the film. And I and I think people need to think about that. I think they need to understand. There's a great documentary actually about Jack Johnson and and his life and his career. And if you want to understand the true extent of of racism in this country he's an interesting lens to examine it through that's for sure and of course we also have the the film with james earl jones which is a, yeah i i like that film too the great white hope so um yeah yeah now one of the films you brought up was not one that had immediately come to mind for me uh cornbread mm -hmm. earl and me that's my friend cornbread Man, he's the greatest. Beautiful, man. You are beautiful. He's the best basketball player in the city. Maybe even the world. He's a man with a plan. Got a basketball in his hand. He's going to college. He's got offers from the pros. And everybody knows he's going to make it. Especially Earl and me. That's my cousin. And I do remember this film because I remember watching it for the first time as a fair, like a young teenager. And I remember it made me cry so hard <laughs> Yeah. because um, it's, it's such a tragic story, but talk about why you feel this film in particular kind of echoes a lot of what's going on today. Well, it's, uh, I, I, I can't remember the exact year it came out. I think it was 74. I know it was during the, the black exploitation era and they tried to market it as something different than black exploitation, which it was. And it's about um, a basketball player, a, a high school kid who's about to go to college to play basketball. And he's uh, shot down by the police. It, it, you know, he's mistaken. It's this case of mistaken identity. He's shot down by the police and, and it leads to a riot and then there's a trial and then there's a cover up and, and it's literally every single thing that we see happening right now. You, you talk about, you know, watching a movie and going, oh, wait a sec, this looks vaguely familiar. Oh yeah, because it happened last week. I didn't see that movie. I knew of the movie when I was a kid in the 70s, but I didn't see it. And I was actually terrified to see it. In my mind, Cornbread Earl and me was like Jaws, you know, it was like this, because I remember one of my cousins seeing it and her telling me about it, and it sounded so terrifying, you know, it was a movie about um, the cops killing an innocent black kid, and years later, when I finally did see it, it was, I, I, I the one thing I remember was I saw it after Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing had come out, which has, you know, an incredibly powerful scene of of unrest after the police kill radio rahim the character radio rahim and and i remember watching cornbread earl and me and going um yeah this is actually more intense than what happened in do the right thing you know because do the right thing as much as i love that movie is an examination of all the things that lead up to this this moment, you know, the 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 killing of Radio Rahim and and the burning down a part of a neighborhood, whereas Cornbread Earl and Me is like, no, it just shows like, there's like if if you go and watch Do the Right Thing again, which I did recently, there's all these moments, at least for me, where I was like, oh, yep, if somebody had just done something different here, we could have probably avoided what happens later, right? There's all these moments. But when you watch Cornbread Earl and Me, it's that realization that it's like, oh no, there's sometimes there is, you are just an innocent bystander who gets shot down by the police. You killed Cornbread! He's dead! No! 
think they're brave shooting kids. They ain't no damn good. Hey, quiet down. Hey, kids, keep it quiet. You killed him! The dirty pigs, they come All right, come on, break it up. Break it up. And then you get caught up in the system of of uh, neglect and and dishonesty, and that's the thing that gets me about that movie. Is it's like it's. It, it's a it's a morality tale that is maybe more relevant than any other thing that we could possibly see right now and the fact that it's 40 something years old just it makes it infuriating i guess for lack of a better term well i think that film unlike do the right thing there's a real sense of innocence that it starts with because yes. it, there's nothing about it when it starts to lead you to believe where it's going to end um, on a certain level. So you go in and you think it's this young kid who's the hero of his neighborhood. I think he's like the first kid who's going to get out and go to college on a athletic scholarship. And he's got two young kids who idolize him. And yep. I think even for a white audience like myself, you know, I was identifying with those kids. And yeah. when that violence happens, it, it does feel like there's this complete loss of innocence in the film on, you know, yep. that certain level, which, you know, Do the Right Thing is a very different kind of dynamic. It's about this kind of like pot coming to a boil where, yeah. you know, yeah. and this was just like out of the blue. And I just remember when when he gets shot, there's just like your stomach just. <laughs> and it's and it, it's, you know. The movie is it's a you know low budget film and um, so there's there's some some issues in terms of production value but leading up to him getting shot is one of the most tense scenes or tense sequences in a movie you know and and because you're right it starts out and it's this really innocent film and then as as it's building up you sort of oh, wait a sec, I think something bad might be about to happen. You don't think it's going to be as bad as it's going to be. And it's it's one of those movies, every time I've watched it, I've, I've tried to imagine what would it be like watching this in a theater for the first time, you know, when, when something like this has never been seen before, never been, you know, done before, represented in quite this way. And and you're right, it's, it really is, in a lot of ways, it's about the the loss of innocence, and 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 seeing the world for what it can be and in, in its ugliness and in some ways that's what's going on in parts of america right now and it it becomes a it's an interesting time because for some of us it's like oh no yeah the uh, i i've seen this before i i get it whereas there's other people who are you know very shocked by s some of the things that they've seen in the news over the last few months and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, because of the pandemic, um, we don't have the same distractions that we would normally have. We, we, you know, you can't turn away from coverage about the murder of George Floyd or, or Breonna Taylor and watch basketball because there is no basketball. There is no baseball. There is no anything else. And and so I think that that in a lot of ways, America and, and the problem is, is America has lost its innocence so many damn times over the years in one capacity or another. But I think we're also losing our innocence again. And, and it feels a little different this time. You know, talk to me again 10 years from now and let me know. But uh, right now it feels a little different. Yeah, it was interesting because here in San Diego, there was some looting and rioting that happened after a peaceful protest and there was even one of our young reporters who was like i'm shocked that something like this happened in sunny san diego and i felt like <laughs> what 
cultural rock have you been living under that i mean we're a border town at the very least so the sense of race issues is very prominent to me and i'm not even like somebody who watches the news but like to me film and art have given me like more of a context for a lot of this than watching the news i feel like and like i was not surprised at all i was like like well like I've seen this happen numerous times. You know, you've yeah. got 68, well, I, Rodney King, whatever you want to pick. And it's interesting because I was, uh, you know, I, I, I've i been to San Diego many times. And, and I think that, like, that city's got a crazy homeless problem, right? And And the problem isn't the homeless people. The problem is that there's no homes for people and they can't afford to live and there's nothing there's no social services but it's interesting because you know this year there, there isn't going to be the san diego comic-con and and i was actually thinking about this because i i usually only go to san diego once a year for comic-con and i was thinking okay so next year when i go how bad is is that city going to be in terms of we're about to take we're taking a, a horrible economic hit and so there's there's certain cities that I go to with some degree of regularity that already have serious homeless problems where the disparity between the haves and the have-nots is already immense. And it's like, you know, man, what's San Diego going to be like six, seven months from now? What's San Francisco going to be like six, seven months from now? New York. And and it's interesting because, yeah, you talk about this reporter and it's like if, if you're shocked by anything – you're only allowed to be shocked for about 10 seconds and then you have to go, okay, wait a sec. Nope. I, this is, this all kind of makes sense. N nothing happens in a vacuum. Nothing happens just because there's, and, and so the key is, is you have to peel back the layers and examine it and go, okay, well, you know, why, why is this the case? It's, it's interesting to me because uh, going back to the Black Panther Party book that I, the graphic novel that I've written, there's so much police brutality in cities like Los Angeles and Oakland and in the Bay Area in general and all over the country in the in the 1960s. And, you know, it's sort of like, you know, why were why were the police so violent? Why were the police so racist? And then you begin to understand that, oh, well, you know, after World War II, as there was these great population shifts, as a lot of black folks left the South, then police forces in, in major cities started to grow. And what they did is they recruited people from Texas, from Mississippi, from Alabama, from Louisiana. So cities like Oakland and Los Angeles, they were recruiting their cops from some of the most racist parts of the country. And it's, it's no coincidence that countries in, or, or cities in this country in which the African-American population grew exponentially also had their police forces grow exponentially and that they were recruiting from parts of the country in which the oppression and abuse of black people was a matter of course. And, and so here we are now, 60, 70 years after World War II, after post-World War II, and this is how we got here. But most people can't, they, they'll just go, wow, how did, you know, how do we get so bad that, that a cop could kneel on someone's neck for nearly nine minutes and kill them? And, and that's the end of the questioning. They don't want to dig deep enough to, to look at how the systems happen. They don't want to look at, you know, with Breonna Taylor's murder, when the report was, when the police report was, was released, she didn't even have, her gunshots weren't even listed as, as injuries. There was, there was listed as none. Right. And it's like, well, yeah, this has been going on for a long time. You know, when, when the Chicago Police Department murdered Fred Hampton, they lied in their police reports. And, and the state's attorney general lied to the press. And it was only because the people in the streets said, no, this isn't true. We, you know, again, even with, the, with George Floyd, right? People are saying, oh, well, you know, what's different about George Floyd? There ain't nothing different because we've been providing proof and evidence for decades of, of malfeasance and murder and it always leads to right back to where we are people asking well how why and i don't understand and it's not in my country you know it's like uh 
Sorry, getting up on my soapbox. <laughs> well, it's infuriating. I mean, I do remember that quote from James Baldwin when somebody said something like, well, you got to give it time. And he was, this was close to when he was uh, to his death. And he's like, how long are you asking me to wait? Like, yes, my lifetime, my father's lifetime, you know, you can't keep saying wait. Exactly. And, and it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult because it's every time we, it's so easy to go back to, I'll get in trouble for saying this with some people, but I'll say it anyway. When you look at the dynamics of people who are in an abusive relationship, a lot of times they go back to their abuser, right? They go back to their abuser because they, it's something they understand. And even though it's a terrible, horrible situation. They understand it. They know how to live with even the terror and, and the fear and, and the, the violence. And, and, and in that regard, American society is, it's, it's an abusive relationship. A lot of us are in, in this abusive relationship. And the thought of going someplace else and trying something different and changing is so terrifying that we just go back to our abuser. You know, it's it's that concept of the devil, you know, you can't keep doing it. You can't keep doing it. And and it's at some point it has to change. I, I just I know we're going off subject a little bit about, um, you know, we were talking about film, but I was I just I literally had a conversation this morning with a, a very dear friend of mine who's dealing with, um, you know, uh, sexual assault she'd been assaulted and and nobody believed her for years and uh the person who did it meanwhile had a very successful career and then went on to abuse other people and and worked for a company that that you know enabled it and and we were talking and she said we you know we need to change that company and i was like i don't know if change is enough and she said well, maybe we need to burn it down. And I was like, yep, because they've had every opportunity to fix it and they didn't. And even if they tried, even if they brought in, you know, the, the special training, sometimes the disease is so entrenched that you just have to, you have to tear it down and let somebody else start, you know, another company that, that does it right this time. But we have to be careful not to keep going back to our abuser just because we're afraid of what the future might hold, because we're afraid of change. Because change is inevitable. It happens no matter what. And change is always scary for people. Oh, yes. Well, what... you, know who, you know who's afraid of change? <laughs> Caterpillars are afraid of change. And the reason they're afraid of change is because they really change. They they go into a cocoon and they come out a completely different thing. They come out a butterfly. I I I I imagine that is very painful and difficult. And there's a bunch of young caterpillars hanging out wherever they hang out, going, "I don't want to become a butterfly. That looks scary." And uh, but change is inevitable. Now, one thing I want to talk about is not a film, but a series. It's Ava DuVernay's When They See Us, which is a dramatization of what happened with what's known as the Central Park Five. Yep. And I have to say, I just watched this, and this is a case of uh, five young African-American boys who were uh, convicted of the... I think they called her the Central Park jogger who had been raped yep. and, and brutalized. And it came out eventually that the boys' testimony or the, the boys' confessions were forced. And mm -hmm. eventually they were um, exonerated. But I have to say, the final episode focuses on one of the boys who uh, served the longest time and was a teenager and put into Rikers with the adult prisoners right away. I had a hard time watching just 70 minutes of yeah. his life and to think that he had 13 years of that was that just yeah. brutal and the police and the prosecutor or the DA are still saying like no 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 they're really still guilty even though somebody confessed they must yep. have just been and talk about like not being willing to face <laughs> that's some that's some serious cognitive distortion right there and um I, you know, I, and I said to you, I think I said, sent you a message. I said, 
yeah, you don't need to watch this. It's it's not gonna. <laughs> it it can be difficult to watch. You know, it's it's. I think it's necessary for a lot of people, but it's not. You have to be in the right frame of mind. And for me, it was very difficult to watch because for two reasons. One is because I actually lived in New York City at the time that this happened. I'm only a few years older than uh, than the oldest. Uh, well, I think Corey Weiss was the oldest, who's the one you're talking about. Um, they were all between like 13 and 16, if I remember correctly. And at the time, I was probably 18 or 19. And so I, I was there. I was there in the, the when all this was going on and it was being played out in the media. And I remember how it was being presented. And um, and and to me, it was this sort of terrifying notion of, well, that could have been me. You know, it's and, and that's the, the problem with something like the Central Park Five or going back to the Scottsboro Boys or or Emmett Till is that for for black men to be accused of doing anything inappropriate with a white woman can be a death sentence. I don't know. Again, you've got me up on my soapbox. I, I apologize. <laughs> well, are there any other films that you'd like to recommend that might help people, again, put what's going on today into a context? And, you know, I, I was thinking of some of like maybe Melvin Van Peebles films like, um, Sweet Sweet Backs, Badass Song, or uh, The Watermelon Man is an interesting one that doesn't get shown that much. I love Watermelon Man so much. I keep I keep telling I've been trying to get someone to remake that for thirty something years. Um, well, and explain the the conceit of that film is that uh, Godfrey Cambridge is white to begin yeah, with, and wakes up <laughs> and wakes and, up one morning black. Yep, and he's and Godfrey Cam Cambridge's play as, as a white man, he's um, he's sort of that benign bigot. You know, he's the one that makes jokes about you know racist jokes that are you know not that funny, but he thinks they're funny. Okay, buddy, this is a hijack. Take this elevator to Harlem. <laughs> he thinks he's somewhat progressive, but he's not. And then one morning he wakes up and he's black. <laughs> And it's about watching his life crumble. And it's a comedy. It's a very dark comedy, but it's I find it hilarious. But it's watching his life crumble and watching him try to adjust to being a black man in America. And the interesting thing is, is like there's part of you as you're watching it, you're trying to find sympathy or empathy for him. But then it's also like, okay, well, this guy he's only been at this for a week. It ain't that bad, you know? It's this this notion of, is is it is becoming a black person really the worst thing that can happen to you? And, and at what point do you actually become black? And I think that that's the powerful thing about that movie is that it's also this examination of how that, that part of what it means to be black in this country is a huge part of it is determined by society. It's it's determined by what society's perceptions of you are, what law enforcement's perceptions of you are, what women's perceptions of you are, and and um, and so you see this guy have this thrust upon him through no no choice of his own. And in part, it's the the funny part is, oh, it's it's a white guy who no one would want this to happen to them. And then that's the funny part. But then the tragic part is we kind of know where his life is going. We know what's part of what's going to happen to him. And, and I keep, like I said, I would love to, to see a remake of that. I think it's, it's a perfect time. In fact, after we finish this up, I might call my agents and, and see. So um, <laughs> see if I can get, get a, a gig writing it or something, producing it. Well, that would be great. And the, it's interesting too, that the studio wanted him to shoot a different ending in which yeah the guy wakes up from the nightmare, quote unquote, of being black to be yeah. white again. And he basically refused to do it. Yeah, no, <laughs> in a that, clever that, way. Would have been a cop -out. that would have been a cop yeah. out. And 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 because the end really is about the acceptance, you know, it's it's about it's getting into what, you know, W. E. B. Du Bois talked about, the double consciousness of blackness and and it's um it's such a deep movie and, and, you know, Van Peebles for whatever reason is, is, 
has distanced himself from it over the years. And it's been lost in the shadow of Sweet Sweetback, which actually came out after he made Sweet Sweetback after he made Watermelon Man. And I think for its time, you know, Watermelon Man was made in 69, 70, came out in 70. And it's, I, I still think it's a pretty revolutionary movie. Yeah, it's got flaws, but what movie doesn't? But but even that starts to get into issues of police brutality. And, you know, that's a movie I don't, I honestly don't know what the availability of it is right now. I know, I mean, I've got my copy. I've got it on VHS and DVD. So I might even have it on Laserdisc, but it's definitely something worth worth checking out. I've become a huge fan of of turning people on to actually more onto documentaries that I know are really solid. And I think that, um, you know, Raul Peck's uh, I Am Not Your Negro Mm -hmm. about James Baldwin is is a crucial documentary for people to watch. And it's, and this is interesting. I don't necessarily know that many black folks that, you know, most black folks I know who've seen it, love it because we love James Baldwin, but it's, it's, there's, also this feeling of like, oh yeah, I, I didn't necessarily need to see this movie. Yeah, I, I knew most of this stuff. So it's it's sort of like the, um, you know, set, sit down with your white neighbor or your coworker or your, you know, even your, if you're, you know, have white folks in your family, sit down with them and hey, we're gonna, you know, watch a double feature of, you know, I'm not your Negro and then something lighthearted like Watermelon Man and then have a really deep discussion about it. Um, I think that any movie that helps to reveal the humanity of, of black folks is, is more important, honestly, than a movie that, that, you know, as much as I love the spook who sat by the door, I, I think that there's, there's the plight that we face of racism and violence, but all that springs from dehumanization. And so if there's something, if there's a movie or a documentary or a book that that helps to reassert our humanity, I'm I'm as much in favor of that as I am of say and and Cornbread Earl and me does that, but it's also it's it's you know punctuated with that violence and you don't always need that violence to to make that statement like you know sometimes you just want to watch people having a good time you know people laughing and and going um, oh I you know I didn't know this and I I think that so much entertainment and pop entertainment that deals with the black experience in America is, is there's so much trauma in it that it's like, there's times where I, I just would rather sit back and watch an episode of murder. She wrote than 12 years a slave. You know, I don't need to, I don't need to see that anymore. Although murder, she wrote is probably a bad example. Cause that just sort of, you know, that, that turns murder into like, you know, a weekly event of, of no great consequence. So um maybe friends is a is a better example the, a show that takes place in new york city where there's almost no people of color you know <laughs> are there any other documentaries you might want to mention um well there's oh there's a great documentary about the central park 5 actually called the central park 5 and that's um sarah burns which is ken burns's uh daughter did that and then Ken Burns did a documentary about Jack Johnson and and that's a, a an amazing documentary called Jack John it's called Unforgivable Blackness the rise and fall of Jack Johnson I'm sure it's streaming somewhere um, and there's there's a great documentary series that PBS did in the 80s called Eyes on the Prize which is about the American civil rights movement and it, it was the first season of it was like i want to say eight episodes or ten episodes and that one's pretty easy to find eyes on the prize two which um you know goes from like about 64 to about 70 is is harder to find but um and it's in you know in some ways it's old uh, dated because this, this was a series done back in the 80s and, and a lot of stuff has changed but there's also so much stuff that people have forgotten you know, I was talking about the Kerner Report and the Kerner Commission, and that's talked about in this doc. Um, and I'm sure there's others, but those are, you know, like I know for a fact I Am Not Your Negro is is easy to find right now. And and, um, and I think that that's, but I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for stuff like there's a, a, a PBS documentary on um, 
called Slavery in the Making of America, which is always fascinating. I've watched that a bunch of times. And then they have another one on Reconstruction, which is that people go, what's Reconstruction? And it's the, you know, it's the time immediately after the American Civil War when, when this country was grappling with, well, what do we do with all these, these Black folks that used to be enslaved? And, and the answer is, well, you didn't do right by them. And, and there's a great documentary called um, Reconstruction that, that gets into that. And there's a couple of really good books, uh, actually more than a couple of really good books on that subject. And I think that it's, that's one of those things that people just don't get. They don't get how badly, uh, when we talk about the American Civil War, we talk about that the North won the war, but they actually, they really kind of didn't. The South had the final word, you know, and we're seeing it now. This is why all these Confederate statues are being torn down and people want to burn history textbooks and, and why I had tears of joy when the, the Daughters of the Confederacy headquarters was burned in Virginia a couple of weeks ago. It's like, if you want to talk about a malignant force of evil in America, it's the Daughters of the Confederacy. They literally managed to rewrite the history books and, and so much of where we are trapped in terms of the myth of white superiority in this country was, was in part facilitated by this organization that wanted to respect and honor the, the, the sanctity and the, the legacy of the Confederacy. The, you know, the Confederacy was a rogue nation of terrorists who, who lost. And yeah, so I have nothing good to say about them. Well, before we wrap up, and because yeah. you have a coffee poster right behind you as I'm talking to you, yeah. um, I would like to cite one kind of true black exploitation uh, film. And Pam Greer is a great example. And, and coffee is interesting. You are doing this book on the Black Panthers. And although this film is not specifically about Black Panthers, uh, she does involve the help of some kind of mi militant yeah. blacks and it shows how strong a female character is in that scenario too which is something that is also part of the black panther history is that women were a big part of that and i just wanted to know if you'd want to talk and say anything about coffee they call her coffee because if you jive her she'll cream you this is the end of your rotten life coffee the baddest one chick hit squad that ever hit town. All your friends are dead. Well, I killed them all. Coffee. She's got a body men would die for. And lately, a lot of them have. Coffee's black. Coffee's hot. And sometimes as sweet as sugar. I know what you want to, and you're gonna get it. Coffee. Always where the action is. A mean kind of super chick who don't take nothing off of nobody. You want me to crawl? You want to spit on me and make me crawl? See Coffee. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without a parent. Look out, Harlem. Here comes Coffee. The godmother of them all. Well, Coffee and, and Foxy Brown has a, has a great scene, too, where she recruits these guys that are essentially the Panthers and I want to do something that gets more into pop culture and black exploitation films and a, and a new project I'm trying to do and that the, the Pam Greer stuff really touches upon it because it, it you know even though the characters she portrayed were these hyper sexualized in a lot of ways male fantasies of what a strong woman looks like there were a lot of strong women in the movement in the Black Panther Party who did you know they were there was just as many women training and learning how to use guns as there were men that were in the kitchens cooking for the, the free breakfast program. And I think that that's, you know, the history of women, black women, and, and their role in not just the civil rights movement, but going all the way back to abolitionism and the Underground Railroad, all that, like that in and of itself is so poorly recorded. And, and on my list of things to to work on and try to rectify, that's at the top of my list is like, even if, and it's not necessarily say I'm the one to do it, but we need to see more, you know, narratives, graphic novel narratives about whether it's an Ida B. Wells or a Fannie Lou Hamer or Shirley Chisholm. There's so many women that did so much and, and, and not just black women, but I, I mean, when it comes to history, recognizing the achievements of any cross section of humanity, 
I think we could all agree that women are the ones that have been left out the most. And, and I think that's another part of the change that we need to, to face. And we, no matter how painful or scary it might be, we need to address the, the oppression of women and, and, but not just the oppression, also the, the massive accomplishments, starting with giving birth, right? Like, where would we be without women? Um, so, yeah, again, that's my soapbox. It's always great talking to you because you, you don't, we, we never have uh, dull conversations about, you know, what's my favorite episode of the Flintstones? Well, and for me, films really are a great way, I think, to get people to discuss issues and to kind of create empathy for other people. And they're so accessible. Uh, you know, people yep. aren't scared to watch a movie. Sometimes they're scared to read a book or pick it up. Oh, yeah. um, but a movie, it's pop culture, it's entertainment. And sometimes you can just slide stuff in that <laughs> they, <laughs> they might not be aware of. And, and it's easier to hand somebody a, a DVD or something and say, hey, give this a watch and see if it has some sort of impact on them. I agree. I agree 100%. It's also why I love comics and graphic novels so much. Mm -hmm. You can you can do that to a certain extent as well with that that medium. Well, I am looking forward to your Black Panther graphic novel, and uh, hopefully, maybe we can talk about that when it comes out. Yeah, that'd be great, and and hopefully, you know, at some point, people will be able to travel a little bit more freely and get around. I'd like to get back down to San Diego and and. Um, your city has one of my favorite libraries of any city I've been to in this country. It's just such an, that, that downtown library is so, um, I love it there. And I've got, you know, some really good friends in San Diego. So hopefully I get to visit you, everyone there sometime in the, in the relatively near future. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much. Thank you. It was good talking to you. Stay safe and healthy and be well. Is David Walker, author of the upcoming The Black Panther Party, a graphic novel, coming out in January. For links to some of these films, go to kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. Plus, if you want to see the daily Black filmmaker spotlights I'm doing, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Cinebeth, that's C-I-N-E-B-E-T-H, or like my Cinema Junkie page on Facebook, where I'm also posting those highlights. I'll also be posting a companion podcast to this on Monday with David talking more about the Black Panther Party and featuring an interview I did with San Diego Black Panther chairman Henry Lee Wallace V, just to provide some historical context in addition to the cinematic one. Thanks for listening to another episode of Cinema Junkie. Please consider sharing the show with a friend. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.